Well, this will uh, definitely be the last in the series of talks on the Divine Liturgy. And just to recap, as Alexander said, last time we did the, the, the central part of the, uh, the, the liturgy, the so-called uh, anaphora, or Eucharistic canon. Anaphora is the Greek word which means literally uh, lifting up, uh, offering to, uh, to God. And we come now to the, uh, we ended at the moment where the priest uh, slightly elevates the holy gifts and says the words, uh, the holy things are for the holy. In Russian, the holy things are the sanctified, the consecrated bread and wine, the holy gifts, uh, the holy body and precious blood of Christ. They are for the holy, literally for the saints. Uh, who are they? Uh, the saints, the holy ones uh, here are, believe it or not, us. Yeah, We are the saints. Uh, we mentioned this several times in one talk or another. Uh, every Christian is called to, uh, on the one hand, is made holy uh, through through baptism, through chrismation, and the other holy mysteries. And the other hand is called to holiness as a personal vocation. Be perfect, says Christ, as your Father in heaven is perfect. However, uh, the choir uh, respond at that point uh, with these words. One is holy, one is Lord. Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. So we recognize that uh, it's not uh, us, it's not we who are holy in our own right, absolutely not. Um, but uh, we are holy, we can be holy only to the extent to which we are together with, united to Christ. At this point, <coughs> the priest does one of the most import important actions of the liturgy. He takes this cube of bread, the, the agnus, the, the lamb, which uh, to begin with represents the sacrifice body of Christ, and then uh, action of the Holy Eucharist actually becomes Christ, the body of Christ. And he breaks it into four sections. And this action of liturgical action of breaking corresponds to what Christ himself did at the uh, mystical supper. Where it says, read in the, the Gospel of the Lord, <coughs> took bread, gave thanks, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples. One, uh, we have the four uh, sections of the holy bread, one is placed into the chalice with the consecrated one. This is uh, the one, if you rem do you remember, those of you who were there here at the beginning when we did the proskimedia, uh, the prosron uh, has a, is a seal on it with the words, Jesus Christos Nika, Jesus Christ is victorious. Uh, and these correspond to the four portions. Of the, uh, of the consecrated bread, and the one which is 
easier to show you. There's a little diagram in this in the priest book. Perhaps we can see this later on the video. But after the breaking <coughs> of the bread, you have the four portions mm -hmm. on the discos there. Jesus, Christos, they're just arranged like that. And as he puts it into the chalice, he says, uh, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. There is a sense in which the joining of the consecrated body of the Lord and the blood uh, expresses, symbolizes, if you like, the resurrection. I think this will be clearer if we can find it on the... Sometimes difficult to describe the action concisely. Come on, Chris Gunt. Thank you, Steve. <coughs> the second portion uh, of the consecrated bread is used for the, the one with the Christ on the seal, is used for the communion of the priest and the celebrating clergy. You know, the priest and the clergy receive the, the communion in the sanctuary first. The doors are closed at this time. The choir sing something or somebody reads the prayers before communion. And the other two portions, Nika, uh, the priest, uh, after he has received communion himself, thank you, cuts up and places the particles in the chalice for the communion of the people. So it looks like we just need to go back a little bit. <coughs> but we'll get there eventually. Let's look at the prayers. The priest reads here. Ah, yes. As the priest is breaking the bread, he says these words. Broken, uh, it says, the rubric says, the priest divides the lamb into four parts, saying in a low voice, broken and distributed is the lamb of God, who being, who being broken is not divided, who being eaten is never consumed, but sanctifies those who partake thereof. The body of Christ is divided so that it can be given to each of us individually. Christ himself, of course, cannot be divided. Rather, we who are separated are united, brought together in him. Ah, yes. I mentioned that the particle, one particle is put into the consecrated wine. He says the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And then... <coughs> Add to the chalice some hot water. Um, the deacon says, Master, bless the hot water. And the priest says, Blessed is the warmth of thy holy things, always, now and forever, and unto the ages of ages. And as the water is poured in, the priest or the deacon or the priest says, The warmth of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. Like many things uh, in the, the church, in orthodoxy as a whole, there is both a, uh, a practical and a spiritual, uh, spiritual or symbolic aspect to that. <coughs> the practical aspect <coughs> of diluting the, uh, the wine. Well, first of all, this was simply the general custom in the ancient world. Nobody uh, ever drank neat wine. It was always let down with some water. Secondly, uh, in, in many churches, many times of the year, uh, it can be quite cold and uh, to somehow it doesn't seem 
right when you're taking communion if it's very, very cold. You know, because communion is uh, life, the life of Christ. So it's symbolically dissonant if it's very cold. <clears throat> so that's why the water is hot. And, it's, uh, and, and enough is added to raise it more or less to body temperature. <clears throat> now we will uh, finally be able to go back and see how this looks. We can start it here you see him elevating the holy bread the consecrated bread and here he is breaking it <laughs> here he is putting it into the chalice here the deacon is adding the hot water. The warmth of faith full of the Holy Spirit. The priest reads a short prayer asking for God to forgive his sins before he takes communion. And he bows to the people. You never see that because the doors are closed. Uh, but he is supposed to ask for forgiveness of all the people before coming to communion, makes the full prostration before the holy gifts. And then he says to the deacon, deacon, draw near. And then he gives the holy bread, body of Christ to the deacon. Here we actually see the uh, manner in which communion was given in, in the ancient church. Uh, separately the the body uh, Christ and the blood of Christ <sighs> technical problems here why they have separately bread and separately uh, the, the wine why they not uh, have communion like all people because yeah <coughs> uh, well, if you go back to the beginning, yeah, read the gospel. Christ, it says Christ took the bread, blessed, consecrated, broke it and gave it to the apostles. And after he gave Afterwards, he gave the, the cup with the wine. And this is how it was done uh, originally. Yes. Uh, here they're reading the same prayer before communion. I believe, O oh Lord, and I confess that we all... Uh, read. Then why we are not having communion like this? Why we couldn't have bread and after the spoon? Well, uh, it's uh, it's a practical question uh, because when you have communion like this, you have to be extremely careful. You know that no crumbs mm -hmm. fall on the floor. Yeah, very careful. Just only because and, of the practical. Yeah, it's, it's just a practical thing. So you know when they became met very many people in the church and they you know they didn't make uh, nice orderly english cues you know we know from historical accounts that everybody is pushing you know to get to the to the chalice it became too dangerous to, to do it like that when it became like this from the first times or later uh i think probably from around the fourth fourth century onwards when there was this <coughs> Huge increase in the number of people. <coughs> <coughs> uh, 
why uh, the priests and diakons uh, having communion different way. Uh -huh. it... Because on the Easter week, the doors are open and you can see yeah. all the Holy Week Okay, we, we will pick up on these questions. Uh, little difficult to answer while we're uh, watching the poem at the same time. <coughs> Priest then gives the chalice to the deacon. After receiving communion, <coughs> Priest and deacon say, Behold, this has touched my lips, it shall take away my iniquities, and it shall cleanse me from my sins. It's an allusion to the vision of the prophet Isaiah when he was in heaven and he saw he was uh, appalled because he was, saw God in some form. And then an angel came carrying a burning charcoal uh, on some tongs and touched his lips to purify him. And they, I will just stop that now because obviously we're having some problems with our internet connection here. So, uh, the question being, oh, by the way, I should just mention on this subject of the way in which the people are received communion. In, you know, there are different liturgies in the church. The liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, which is the one we use 90% of the time. The liturgy of St. Basil, which we used... Well, actually, uh, what, yesterday? No, the Sunday, because it was St. Basil's Day, uh, and the, on the Sundays in Lent. But there is a third liturgy, which is not well known at all. It's called the Liturgy of St. James. St. James, the brother of the Lord, the first bishop of Jerusalem. And in, the, uh, in this liturgy, it retains the ancient form of the communion of the people. It's very rarely celebrated and sometimes yeah, even when it is celebrated we use the normal form of giving the communion to the people but in principle the communion is given uh, separately uh, in that liturgy. Why does this take place behind closed doors? Again I think it, we mentioned this a couple of times earlier on in the uh, talks that uh, in the author in the Eastern Christian tradition there is a tendency to to cover, to veil that which is sacred uh, as a sign of respect or reverence. And I th suspect that once the church is filled up with crowds of people, uh, again, who people being what they are, were probably not always standing prayerfully, quietly, in silence, but uh, chattering away, pushing and shoving to get to the front. I suspect the clergy felt that this, to put it at its simplest, they could do with a little bit of peace and quiet while they're actually making their communion. And so they closed the, uh, the doors or drew the curtain or whatever they had at that time. As uh, you mentioned, yes, uh, at, at Easter, the doors are opened uh, all the time, uh, even at this point with the communion of the clergy. Uh, the doors are open also, uh, and generally during the, during the whole time of the liturgy, when a bishop is celebrating, wherever he may be. Again, many things to do with the specifics of the 
the service of the liturgy when a bishop is serving uh, relate back to the early times of the church. And just recently, uh, our bishops decided that in the cathedral churches, like our own now, the doors will be open during the whole liturgy until the communion of the clergy, uh, whoever is celebrating, even, even if it's the junior priest. So the, the liturgical practice evolves. It evolves in one direction, then sometimes it changes and goes back a certain when in our own times, we're seeing, a, to a certain extent, a limited extent, a slight reversion to the more ancient forms. You can see that, for example, in icon painting. Uh, now it became, became normal to paint icons in the traditional style, uh, Byzantine or early Russian or whatever, rather than that sort of 19th century Western style that became popular uh, in Russia and other parts of the Orthodox world. Okay, some more questions. Yes. Пожалуйста. На, на столе а, вот, а, еда. Не было как нет, 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 а, <laughs> The question about uh, when Jesus, uh, Jesus, when they ask Jesus who is it will betray me, and he says the one who puts his hand in the either depending on which cause, either puts his hand in the bowl with me or the one to whom I give something from the the bowl. But this was not about the communion. Although we shouldn't forget that. Uh, uh, the Lord gave communion to all the twelve apostles, Judas included, and afterwards he left, but he'd already received. Yes. <laughs> Am I right? Yes, then, then the communion started. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm afraid. Uh, uh, if you go back and read the gospel, you will see that I am right, that uh, Judas also received communion. Uh, terrible to think about that. This is commented on actually in the, the services for Holy Thursday. <clears throat> you know it's told like the first who was going to heaven was the Rasgoinik? Mm -hmm. The thief. Uh, huh? The thief. Yes, the, the thief. But, and the first one who was going to hell was his uh, here you can see the priest has cut up the uh, holy body and is putting it into the chalice for the communion of the people. At this point, the deacon reads the hymn, Having beheld the resurrection of Christ, let us worship the Holy uh, Lord Jesus. Yes, I was just letting you know your beard looks very nice. It's layered. Okay, okay. okay. So, uh, everything is ready. 
uh, and the priest and the deacon come out for the communion of the people. Deacon says, with, uh, in the fear of God and with faith, draw near. And the priest reads the usual uh, prayer. The words, uh, I believe, O Lord, and I confess that thou art the, truly the Christ who came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Anyone recognize where that comes from? No? Sinners of whom I am chief. It's St. Paul. Yeah? Well, all this you are more or less familiar with. Yeah? How we receive communion. Now, you remember uh, how uh, the prosphora, the little prosphora that we have, you know, go into the altar with the name, you write the names of the people uh, to pray for, um, and the priest takes out the particles during the proscomedia. Remember, Lord, thy servant, so and so and so and so and so and so. Uh, at this point, they are tipped into the uh, chalice, immersed in the uh, blood of Christ. priest blesses the people with the uh, chalice containing the remains of the holy gifts, which are then taken back to the table, the offertory table. Everything, you see, everything has, is done with great care, with great reverence for the body and blood of Christ. After this, the deacon goes out to say the litany of thanksgiving after communion. The priest folds up the antimins. The whole of the Eucharist is about thanksgiving, but of course at this point, having received the Holy Communion, it's uh, important for us to especially give thanks to God for the communion that we have received. And of course afterwards we read the prayers of thanksgiving after communion. Uh, I think this is more or less showing us everything that we need to see for now. So, how can we come to a uh, conclusion. After the litany of thanksgiving, the, pri the priest comes out of the altar, and originally this was as everyone was going about to go home. And he reads the prayer, uh, it's called the prayer behind the Amvon. O Lord, who blesses those who bless thee and sanctifies those who put their trust in thee, Save thy people and bless thine inheritance. Preserve the fullness of thy church. Sanctify those who love the beauty of thy house. Glorify them in return by thy divine power. And forsake us not who put our hope in thee. Give peace to thy world, to thy churches, to the priests, to all in civil authority, and to all thy people. For every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from thee, the Father of lights, and to thee we give glory, thanksgiving, and worship. 
to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. We recognize that uh, everything that is given to us, all the good things that are given to us, are the gifts uh, of God for which we must give thanks. The priest, the choir sing, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And the uh, priest comes out and gives the uh, final blessing and, and the dismiss. So, uh, what I've tried, probably not terribly <coughs> successfully to do uh, in these talks, is to see, to explain as much as I'm able how uh, the liturgy as we know it today, this wonderful, uh, rich, complex, uh, deep uh, uh, mystery has uh, grown out of this very outwardly simple action of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is recorded in the Gospels. At the supper, taking bread, giving thanks. Remember, that uh, is how in the Jewish uh, tradition things were blessed, blessed by giving thanks to God for them, Uh, breaking and distributing to those present with the words, this is my body, this is my blood, do this in memory. Uh, which is broken for you, which is shed for you, do this in remembrance of me. The divine liturgy uh, is something utterly inexhaustible. Uh, You can never get used to it. Uh, Every time it is uh, new, because at every liturgy uh, we are gathered together around that same uh, table that the apostles and disciples were gathered together. We become partakers of the one uh, Eucharistic offering. There is really only so much, and actually not very much, that you can uh, say by way of commentary or explanation. Uh, You have really to experience it. But uh, our experience is made, I think, uh, and I believe this strongly, fuller and deeper by Uh, becoming more familiar with what is actually going on. And we can do that by uh, study in various ways. Uh, But I think it's particularly helpful to study the text of the Divine List to try to understand the structure, why it is the way it is. So our participation becomes more uh, conscious, more uh, rational in a good sense. Remember, in one of the prayers, it says something about our, uh, our rational, ra- excuse me, our rational worship, uh, so that with uh, our minds, as well as our hearts, uh, we could participate uh, in the holy mystery of the Eucharist. Now, I'm sure that you have many other uh, questions. We have. Yes, a little time for general discussion. Yes. Mm-hmm. Rationally thinking, any serves. This is how they celebrated the event. Obviously, they, in the forest they had like a split table. And the interesting thing, the years they moved on, and that stone was struck by. So it couldn't. Mm-hmm. Because it was used as holy. Yes. 
I'll just repeat what you said because uh, so that it's uh, recorded. Uh, Natalia was saying how uh, during the years of persecution uh, in the camps, where there were many, uh, many of the clergy were sent, they tried to find a way to be able to celebrate the liturgy uh, out in the forest somewhere secretly. They managed to get together a bit of bread and some fruit juice for the uh, place of the wine. And, but they, of course they didn't have the antimins. Remember I showed you the antimins, this special cloth with the relics sewn into it, which uh, takes the place of a consecra properly consecrated altar. And as Natalia said, they decided, I think it was, uh, that they could use uh, a bishop instead of the antimins. So the bishop would lie down on the, as a consecrated uh, person, would lie down on the rock, and then they would put the bread and the juice and whatever on his chest, and, and of course, celebrate the liturgy, of course, from memory, no service books. But you can do quite a lot from, from memory, yeah, if it's something you were doing constantly for many years uh, during your lifetime. And these, one can only imagine what these uh, secret liturgies were like, but again, connecting absolutely directly to the beginnings of the church in the years of the persecution, when they celebrated in the catacombs, for example, to be out of the way. So the the remain the communion which uh, the holy guests which remain are uh, consumed by the deacon after the liturgy or by the priest if there is no deacon, mm, of course. Yes, uh, and everything has to be very carefully cleaned with the hot water and, and so. Um, the communion of the sick. Uh, f again, from uh, earliest times. <clears throat> well, uh, we know there is uh, documentary evidence that uh, in early times the deacons uh, were blessed to take the Holy Communion to people who were not able to come to the church directly from the liturgy. Uh, it could be people who were too ill you know, to get to the church, or it could be people who were in prison. Yeah, of course, many uh, Christians were in prison. Probably they had to give a little bribe to the jailer mm -hmm. to let them in uh, and give communion, perhaps for the last time, somebody who was awaiting you know, execution or, or, or whatever. Uh, the uh, general practice in the church today that is to reserve uh, the sacrament. So uh, once a year on Holy Thursday, uh, the priest takes a portion of the consecrated bread, cuts it up into very small pieces. Uh, it's dried mm. uh, and then uh, put into a special uh, container in the tabernacle, which is on the holy table. And when you get the call that you know, so-and-so is in hospital, very ill, possibly dying, uh, priest goes to the altar, 
takes uh, out one of these small particles of bread and put then puts it in a special uh, container. I can show it to you. <coughs> Why not? Okay, so this is uh, what we use. It's called in Russian daro kraniton. It's uh, I don't know quite sure. uh, the thing for keeping the gifts. And this, let me put it on the tables. So you have this small box into which the uh, host, the holy bread, the holy body is placed for for carrying it. You have to, of course, you have to be very careful then when you're carrying the holy. Gift. And you have this miniature chalice. So when you when you get to the hospital, you put you know, put a cloth out and open everything up. Put the uh, holy body in the chalice. Add a little bit of wine, water. This uh, is also when the person is dying at home, right? Yes. So this is what we have to face. Uh, and then you have this miniature spoon, so you can just give communion in, in, in the usual way. So it works, it works. But uh, yes. this, uh, uh, the bread uh, is already, we keep it, but yeah. uh, we use just a normal wine? Yes. Like a little bit? Yes. Okay. Because it's not very practical to mm -hmm. carry the, okay. uh, mm -hmm. the wine. But, uh, yeah, Christ is fully present in, in in both uh, species of the uh, of, of this the sacrament, but this um, bread is was uh, was in wine, no, or just uh, yeah. the dry bread? No, just just the ah, uh, just the, the, it was in wine already. The practice varies. In some places, they add when they're preparing, they add a tiny drop of yeah. uh, wine to the bread. In other places, it's not mm. considered uh, necessary. What if the person is too ill? Well, unfortunately, that happens. Um, so you have to be conscious and you have to be able to do that. Of course, yes. So sometimes it happens. Well, I can give you a... And that all packs pack so away like that. Wonder, for pre-sanctified liturgy, sure. would that be the same from the Holy Thursday or, or is it from the preceding uh, liturgy this, that they take? This, that's another. We can uh -huh. talk about that okay. separately. And I'll take a picture of it. With yes, of course. Camera, the so if the person is too ill, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. For once, I wish I had them. Take that. Is it the same which which is in uh, this stuff on uh, in altar? Yes. Yes. That. Yes. It's a special container for the uh, reserved, the reserved sacrament. But in altar, it's already this pieces of bread. Yes. Yes. They always keep them in altar. Of course. And they prepare them once a year. Yes. Enough for whole year. Only once a year. No, if you don't, if you run out, of course you can do it at enough. But normally, normally it's done on the Holy Thursday. But if you run, run out, you, you prepare again? Yes. When do you use Holy Thursday. It's prepared, prepared on Holy Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm sorry? She's wondering why, how can you keep the bread for a whole year? Because it's, 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 it's dried. Yeah, sukhoi, absolutely sukhoi. No, naturally dried, naturally or? Well, we have a little, you know those um, little uh, food warmers that you have in restaurants with a candle underneath? Yeah, we just put it on, on put on a tray uh, on top of that for a few hours, everything, and then it's completely dry mm -hmm. and it will keep. And all the species you keep yes. in Altair? Yes. Okay. It, it, the, it, yeah. it doesn't look like a big box, so just, I'm just wondering. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's only a small ah. box, but then it's contained, it has, there is a special sort of container, it's called Kovcheg, the ah, Ark, okay. uh, in, in which this uh, mm -hmm. small box with the holy uh, mm -hmm. gifts is kept. Mm -hmm. And then it's just mm. covered to keep out dust mm. and everything. Mm. And it cannot be taken home, so people who have MOBA churches cannot keep it. You know, MOBA churches, for example, people in Hong Kong, they cannot ah. have... Well, I, it's a good question. I'm not sure what, uh, what they... What, uh, the question was, what, what, because in many parishes, uh, they don't have their own church building. Oh, okay. All right, yes. Mm. yes? Oh, that's what uh, so, how do you keep the the, mm -hmm. the reserved sacrament? Uh, it's 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 a question. It's perhaps the priest uh, can get a special mm -hmm. blessing from the priest from his bishop, mm -hmm. keep some at home. But it's uh, of course not a ideal situation. Mm -hmm. So I can give you an example from my just from my own practice. Uh, no, about a month ago. Uh, now I was contacted by somebody from Southampton. You know, I have a parish down down there, uh, and they said to my sister, "Is uh, dying? She has cancer. She's in the hospice. Can you uh, visit her?" So I uh, I said, "Yes, I, I will come tomorrow, whatever." So I uh, this took the the holy gift um, and went to visit. I was able to uh, give her the. She was still well enough to make a confession to receive the holy, uh, holy communion, uh, and then yeah, she passed away about a week later, and then went down just last week to do the uh, the funeral. But unfortunately, it often happens that people leave it. The relatives usually leave it too late mm -hmm. to con to contact the church, to contact the priest, uh, and then if there's not too, so much you can do. If the person is still conscious, you can do the sacrament of uh, anointing, a function, sabor, mm. um, uh, you? Yeah, that's, sometimes they don't even contact you until after they've died, which is... Ah, this is something else. We have it, uh, one on Easter. No, no, no. Before Easter. Okay, you can <coughs> take your seats. Mm. Service. Why is it good to come in the evening and have the Holy Communion? And okay. Many people like it. Yes. 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 Let, let me explain. Uh, this relates to the time of the Great Lent. Uh, now, from ancient times, uh, the Church decided that uh, it was not uh, proper to celebrate the Divine Liturgy during the, the time of the strict uh, fasting. 
So specifically, uh, on the weekdays of Lent, the Great Lent, Vidiki Post, uh, the Church um, said that we will not celebrate the liturgy. Why? Because uh, the liturgy, by its nature, is always uh, festive. Yeah? Uh, it's the great uh, Thanksgiving. It is the uh, coming of Christ uh, among his uh, people. And this uh, festive uh, aspect uh, was felt to be uh, incompatible with the penitential spirit of Lent. You know, but, <clears throat> and so the rule was made that uh, during the Great Lent we will only uh, celebrate the Holy Liturgy, the Eucharist, on Saturday and Sunday. Why the exception? Uh, well, uh, because Saturday and Sunday are, are never uh, strict fasting days. Uh, Sunday, because Sunday is always the day of the resurrection. Saturday, because it's the day uh, of the creation, the day, the day when God uh, rested from his uh, labors. Uh, and it was the, uh, the time was not to work. To have uh, trying to find the, the right word, not exactly a celebration, but a, a, a rest uh, in God. However, uh, again, this dates from the time, early times when people uh, generally received communion quite frequently, you know, not just once a year or once four times a year or even once a month. Uh, and the church also understood that uh, the time of the fast is a spiritual struggle. We face many uh, challenges, not just with the physical aspect of fasting, but also with uh, all kinds of temptations. Anybody who's been orthodox for uh, more than 10 minutes will know that uh, during the time of the fast, usually there are extra temptations that we come to. And so uh, we need the strength, the spiritual strength uh, that we receive above all through the partaking of the Holy Communion. So the, uh, the Church devised this special uh, service called the Divine the Liturgy of the Pre-Sanctified Gifts. Uh, it's not actually a liturgy in the proper sense of the word. There is no uh, anaphora, there is no Eucharistic prayer, there is no consecration of the gifts. Uh, but what happens is that on uh, usually on Sunday, instead of consecrating only one uh, lamb, uh, we consecrate extra ones, usually two as well. Uh, and these con the uh, the consecrated uh, bread, the holy body, is kept on the holy table, uh, and then again, usually on Wednesday and Friday, uh, the liturgy of the pre-sanctified gifts is served. And if you look at this, it's uh, really uh, it's really Vespers, because the beginning is essentially the same as the beginning of the service of Vespers, which is uh, yeah, every day. And then fused onto that, there is a special service of Holy Communion, in which essentially what, what happens is that the uh, consecrated uh, Holy Gifts are brought to the uh, altar table uh, with great reference with cer ceremony, uh, ritual and ceremony uh, and are simply given in communion as at the liturgy, first the clergy and then the people.
in this, uh, the proper time, uh, of course, for the celebration of the liturgy of the pre-sanctified is uh, in the evening. Uh, again, because uh, the weekdays of Great Lent are times of strict uh, fasting, and if you follow the uh, say the rule of the monasteries, then uh, you would not eat until the evening, or at least the sort of uh, late afternoon. In the after Vespers. But the, again, the liturgical genius of the Orthodox Church has made of this basically simple uh, service uh, something of incredible beauty. Uh, it, again, Im- impossible to describe. You just have to come and experience it. <laughs> you know it? Yes. Yeah. These people who are fasting strictly, yes? Yes, of course. Well, uh, again, in principle and in practice, you know, uh, the church, you know, our mother, the church, uh, understands the reality of the lives we lead. So um, there are two variations. In practice, quite often, the liturgy is served in the morning at the same time as the normal liturgy. Um, but we still begin with Vespers at 9 o'clock in the morning or 9.30, whatever. Uh, but, uh, and of course, you know, if one is coming for communion, one comes uh, fasting as, as always. Uh, in the case where it's celebrated in the evening, uh, and again, uh, it, it's quite late, uh, so, for example, in the monastery, I was on um, the Holy Mountain of Athos uh, a couple of years ago during the uh, the fast, and we had the liturgy of the pre-sanctified, but it, it started about two o'clock or half past two in the afternoon. It's normal. Um, and, of course, you know, the, the monks and so on wouldn't have had breakfast that day. But if it, when it, in, pra, in the practice of parishes, you know, it's usually six o'clock or possibly even later. It's a long time, you know, uh, to go all day, all that long day without any food or drink if you and you have a, your work to do and so on. So the the church has made a, a rule that you should fast for six hours. Yeah, so basically from midday, uh, and uh, in this case you can come. For communion in the evening. But it, it is a wonderful uh, thing to do because it transforms your whole day into this expectation of the evening liturgy, the evening communion. And I do urge uh, all of you to try to do that at least once once or twice during the fast. It's a very uh, good thing uh, to do. So, excuse me, what time is that here? Well, Yes, yes. In the evening, yes. Well, again, you have to consult the timetable. Yes, yes. But, uh, but uh, yeah, typically, here at the cathedral, we, uh, uh, we might celebrate it in the evening on, uh, on Wednesday evening and Friday morning. Mm-hmm. Because for some people it's difficult to come in the evening, or other people it's diff- difficult to come in the morning. So to mm-hmm. give the best chance to everyone. But it, it, it's, it is a beautiful, beautiful uh, service. Every week? The fast is uh, five or so. It's every week once. Uh, but I mean just all, uh, all the six weeks? Every week? Yes. Really? Oh. Yes. And in the last week, it's uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then yes. Ah. Last week, all
But you know, this is this is a witness to the uh, the importance of uh, uh, of Holy Communion in the life of the Christian, and especially during this time of sp- increased spiritual struggle. Again, uh, this whole area of confession and communion, the relationship between them and how often one and the other, uh, is something where uh, the practice uh, has evolved uh, in different ways in different times. And I would say the the situation now is quite fluid. Uh, if you go back, say, 100 years, uh, for most uh, Orthodox people around the world, communion was something that you did once a year, yeah, just before Easter, uh, probably on Holy Thursday. Having, yes, yeah, yes. Uh, and, uh, of course, crowds of people would be coming for confession you know, during the, the day before, at least the week before. But if we go further back, so we say many times, go back many centuries, go back to the beginning, you find the situation where uh, being at the liturgy, uh, well, first of all, being present uh, at the liturgy uh, at least once a week was simply, I wouldn't say mandatory, because that implies a, a sort of system of law which was not really present at the time. It was just the normal thing. This is what you, you are a Christian, right? Uh, you, especially in the first century, you have put your life on the line to be a, a Christian. And what else would you be doing on the Lord's Day except coming together as the church, celebrating the liturgy and receiving Holy Communion? Anything else was simply unthinkable. Uh, Quite early on, the church uh, had to make us uh, begin to fix this, you know, in in the system of church uh, practice, which we call canon the canons, saying that if anyone, yeah, any Christian, misses three weeks in a row, yeah, just doesn't turn up at the Sunday liturgy three times without having a good reason, yeah, is considered to have excommunicated themselves, literally. Yeah, that's what it means to be to be out of communion, yeah, uh, by their own choice, uh, and therefore presume they would uh, have to uh, come and repent and receive forgiveness and come back into regular communion. What about confession? Well, uh, some of you may have heard me explaining this before, but never mind. Uh, this arose uh, for dealing with the situation where people were Christians who had committed very, very serious sins. Yeah, what to do with them? First of all, uh, apostasy. You all know what apostasy means? No? No? No, no, it's breaking away from God. Uh, a, a, apo, from the Greek, apostasis means uh, stepping away. Yeah. Uh, so typically what happened was in the times of persecution when you were arrested and charged with being a Christian uh, you were typically were given a choice either to offer the sacrifice to the idols or to face martyrdom that sacrifice could be something very apparently very nominal uh, something as apparently trivial as uh, putting a piece of incense on the charcoal in front of the 
portrait of, the, of Caesar, yeah? and saying, Hail Caesar, or something. Uh, and we know from the, from the records that uh, many, many Christians refused to do that and were sent to the lions or whatever. But of course there were those whose courage failed them at the critical point. They gave in, they con conformed, and both they and everyone else understood that they had, uh, by that act, denied Christ and thereby separated themselves from the body of Christ, from the church. Of course, it happened, the times passed, and so on, then the people were very sorry about what they'd done. Uh, and the question is, what, what do you do with those people? And initially, the, it seems the response was pretty strict. They say, well, sorry, but you know, you've made your choice, you have to take the consequences. A little later on, uh, it was decided that, okay, we will, uh, it is possible to restore these people to the church, but on conditions, uh, the, and the conditions were very tough. You know, possibly uh, to do penance, of course, in you know, various forms, and to receive communion either when you were dying or after maybe twenty years. A similar, uh, similar rules in the case of murder, adultery, sins of that category. Okay, let's call them class A sins. Uh, and yeah, this was the practice in the early uh, in the early centuries, and so there was a whole class of people who uh, were called penitents who were allowed to come to the church, but not to take communion. And there were subgroups. There were either you had to just uh, stand outside um, and pray, or uh, later on you might be allowed into the church. Yeah, but only to the back of the church, uh, and you would have to leave with the catechumens. You know, when the deacon says, catechumens depart. And, yeah. uh, when the time came that you'd done the penance, and the time, you know, your sentence, if you like, was, was up, then the people were received back. But through the uh, special ritual, which became known as the sacrament, the mystery of uh, penitence or confession, people had to come uh, and confess confess their sin, um, not just you know, in the corner of the church to the priest, but in front of the whole congregation. You know, you know, I so-and-so you know, have committed the sin of whatever, uh, and I you know, pray to God and to you to forgive me. Uh, and then the bishop would read a special prayer of absolution, and the person would be accepted back in. So this is the origin of the practice of confession. And you can that's witnessed to even in uh, today in the prayer. The, uh, there were, uh, strictly speaking, there are two prayers the priest should read at confession. Very often, we, because of time and the numbers of people, we read only the second one, which is quite short. You know, our Lord and God and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, through His grace and love towards mankind, forgives you, my child, so and so, all your sins, and lies unworthy priest or the authority given to me to forgive and absolve you. From your sins and set you free in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there is another prayer, uh, which uh, really should, should be read, uh, uh, a longer prayer, but it, it includes the words, uh, Grant unto him a true image of repentance, pardon from all his sins. Reconcile and unite him to thy holy church. Yes. So the, the confession presumes that the person is excommunicated excluded 
from the communion of the church, uh, <coughs> either by their own actions of simply <laughs> leaving or uh, through having incurred some penalty for their sins. So the, the essence of the uh, sacrament of confession is uh, reintegrating the person into the church. And uh, this has a profound, tr- a profound truth in this because uh, any sin, all our sins, to a greater or lesser extent, separate us from God. It's almost a definition of sin. Whatever it is, if it separates you from God, it's sin. Uh, and uh, therefore we need, and because we, you know, we sin one way or another pretty much uh, all the time, uh, we always need uh, this um, reconciliation, this reintegration into the uh, communion. So just to bring the two ends uh, together, what happened historically was that the practice of the confession, which was originally only for the class A sins, became uh, in something that was generally used for, uh, for all, uh, whatever sins people uh, commit. Because at the same, t- uh, also at this time, um, probably beginning from the late 4th century, early 5th century, things, people, now of course there are, the church is much bigger, the time of, main time of persecution already over, and uh, most people are Christian. We're talking about the Greek or Roman world. Mm. Christendom has it become. But something very interesting uh, happens that the people, uh, without anyone telling them, stop coming to communion. There arises the practice, a widespread practice, people coming to the church, coming to the liturgy, but not coming forward to receive communion. And in the end, uh, this was not something that they say the, the, the church hierarchy had uh, imposed or said, no, you mustn't come to. It was a completely spontaneous movement among the people. Well, you could have a, we could have a discussion about why that happened, you know? why people became somehow afraid to, 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 to come to communion regularly. Uh, even we hear St. John Chrysostom rebuking the people, says, well, you know, if you think, you say you're unworthy, you know, well, go and repent. Yeah. Make get worthy, get worthy you know, through repentance, through con- confession. Um, it's a complex question. There's change in the psychology. Uh, because they need to comfort. They don't want. To. Possibly yes. <laughs> confession, if it's done properly, is never a comfortable experience. In the end, uh, the fathers of the church, and you can always feel the exasperation. Say, if you're a Christian, you must come to communion at least once a year. Yeah? If you don't do that, don't call yourself a Christian at all. But even this was uh, be, be, uh, became interpreted as a, as a norm. From being the absolute minimum, it became very quickly uh, the norm for uh, many people for many centuries. Now, of course, if you're coming to communion you're coming to your yearly communion at Easter. I remember, do you remember this, uh, Marcia, was called uh, the Easter obligation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you recognize that phrase? Yes. Yes, your obligation to come to, <laughs> to communion. <laughs> uh, because I'm feeling that we come, then we take five minutes later. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
But yes, right. Uh, so the, you can't, well, I don't know, but I think I can't receive communion if I don't confess. Okay, so anyway, the point is, it's, it's totally, it's clear as daylight that if you have a whole year's worth uh, of life, <laughs> human life behind you, uh, for, for sure you need to come for sure you need to come to confession before you come to communion yeah, it's just obvious if for no other reason than the, f the fact that you haven't come to, uh, you, you haven't been at communion all that time whereas the, the calendar is still there it says if you miss three Sundays in a row then you're excommunicated so obviously there, is a need, uh, there was the need for confession Receive communion as a week. You need to go. No, no. Uh, this, this, this. We're, we're eventually. This was Alexandra's. Oh, this is this. I'm still <laughs> answering <laughs> Alexandra's question. Ah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You can come just and ask. Can I come? Can I come? Okay. okay. So, Plus, what's happened? What? What? <laughs> But what is happening in our own time is also very interesting. That this, uh, I mean, again, without any instructions, without any you know, church pronouncements, people now started to come to com communion more often, more frequently. Yeah? Once a year, uh, or come four times a year. Once a month, some people might come you know, twice a month. Some people even, you know, uh, every Sunday, or especially if there is a feast in the week, you know, more than once during during the week. So it raises the question. So uh, because we had come to the point up to then when there were, uh, especially in the Russian tradition, there was a absolutely strict. Well, actually, hey, you want to come to communion? Well, you must first come to confession. But in a, in a changed, radically changed situation, when people are coming to communion uh, much more frequently before, uh, does this strict one-to-one -one relationship still hold? And the answer is clearly no. Uh, so now we have to find a, a new practice that corresponds to the, you know, the, the changed uh, realities, and we are still, it's, we're still in the process of working this out, uh, but uh, what uh, seems to be happening is that uh, it's too early to speak about a consensus, um, but uh, in m many places uh, now, and in the opinion of many priests and spiritual fathers, uh, if a person is coming uh, relatively frequently, uh, maybe it's not necessary for them to have confession every time. The, uh, the church has uh, sort of officially uh, gone so far as to recognize that you know, at the times of the great feast, at Easter during Bright Week, uh, at Christmas during the time between Christmas and Theophany, uh, officially is blessed to come. Uh, to communion more than once without um, preceding confession. Apart from anything else, it's simply not practicable because of the numbers of people. But in, in the practice of uh, many parishes now, certainly here with the situation that we know best, uh, uh, many spiritual fathers 
especially in the situation where the priest knows you reasonably well, uh, can be reasonably confident that you won't have committed any Class A sins during the week. Uh, he may well give you the blessing to, uh, to, to come to uh, communion uh, and as you wish, uh, and perhaps come to confession once a month or something like that. Oh. Uh, again, this is something anomalous. Uh, the time, the proper time for confession, is uh, probably the evening before. You know, you want so you want to come to communion on Sunday. If you can, the, the best time is to come on Saturday evening for confession. Or uh, you could come sometime during the week before when priest disappears. Uh, it's obviously not right that uh, we should be hearing confessions during the liturgy. During the liturgy, the people, everyone, the priest and the people should be in the liturgy. Yeah. Uh, it, it's absolutely uh, not, uh, not right. Unfortunately, in many places, it simply became a, uh, a normal practice, perhaps because of uh, necessity is something that we are the, trying very hard to get out of it. Uh, there are many uh, times you uh, you can come any any in our church. You can come any pretty much any evening during the week after the evening service uh, have confession. But uh, at the same time, we have to recognize that many people live a long way from the church. Many people can't afford either for time or family or work commitments or for financial reasons to come to the church twice is a problem. Uh, and so for some, for some people, perhaps for many people, it's the only possibility. But even then, we started recently to uh, start hearing confessions uh, well before that, at half past eight on Sunday mornings. So that gives you a whole uh, hour, even an hour and a half before the start of the day. Unfortunately, we do still get people turning up halfway through the liturgy and expecting to have their confession heard. We can have two or three priests confessing uh, all the way through the liturgy and still not necessarily manage to hear everyone. So, as I say, it's a, we're, it's in, we're in a, a time of uh, certain fluidity change, basically still working out how to find the right relationship between uh, Confession and communion. Uh, we, I think, we can, in very broadly, <coughs> broad terms, we can say, uh, come to communion when you have the real desire to do so, and come to confession when you have the real need to do so. Uh, uh, well, that's another question. The question of. Uh, question of the preparation for communion. How do we prepare for communion? Well, uh, the, uh, that which is, uh, as it were, written into the uh, laws of, uh, of the church is fairly limited. It simply says that you must come uh, fasting, so without breakfast, that you, <coughs> that you should be uh, as far as possible, at peace with everyone, um, and that there should be nothing which is separating you from the, the, the church, from Christ.
in practice, mm. uh, it's become traditional to read certain prayers before communion, which you find in the prayer book. Uh, there are two, they're in two sections. One is called the uh, mm. Uh, the what's it called? the rule of preparation for Holy Communion. Uh, this is a series of prayers. It takes a little less than an hour to read. Uh, normally, they would could be read in the uh, in the morning before coming to church or on the way to church. But yes. <laughs> Oh, yes. There's one father uh, from Moscow who told our undergrounds is the most <laughs> holy place because all the people on Sunday just hold in and read. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I read re- recently that uh, somebody reported the, the most common uh, Google's uh, or whatever search term on the Moscow underground is morning prayers. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. So, yes. Um, uh, underground monastery. Uh, again, uh, apart from that, there is a, a tradition, specifically Russian tradition, actually, uh, of reading uh, the evening before uh, uh, certain additional prayers, which is called the Three Canons. Again, it takes about a bit under uh, an hour. There is also the practice, widespread practice, uh, of fasting for three days before that doesn't mean not eating anything for three days, but it means, uh, because we use the word fasting in two senses, but it means you know, basically the fasting diet, the vegan diet. Mm. But again, this is an area it's, it's a, where nothing is mm. absolutely as fixed as it used to be. Because again, the extent of preparation uh, is going to de- should have a certain relationship to the frequency of communion. It's fairly, it should be obvious that if you are coming to communion once a year and the rest of the year you are not praying, you are not going to church regularly, you're not fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays, whatever. basically you're living a life well removed from that of a normal uh, Orthodox Christian, then you need a fairly serious period of preparation to get ready for communion. We can't just walk up and have communion just like that, as if... Um, uh, but it's a different case when the person is <coughs> trying to live a more or less normal uh, orthodox life, observing the usual fasting days, praying regularly, coming to church regularly. And again, the many uh, spiritual fathers would recognize that it's not, there's no absolute requirement to fulf- tick all those boxes, if you like. But three days fasting, three canons, uh, and whatever. Again, a sort of consensus is emerging that, <coughs> yes, uh, yeah, of course, read the prayers before communion, the puzzle. Yeah, it doesn't take that uh, that long, and it puts you in the right frame of mind. Come to the evening service if you possibly can. This is also best preparation for the liturgy and communion. Uh, if you are able to do something, you know, as... Beyond that, to read the three canons or whatever, this is very good and very helpful. But we cannot uh, make of such things absolute requirements because what happens in practice is that people think, oh gosh, yeah, I would really like to have it's just too much, I can't get it together, I can't find the time. 
and then we become uh, we find that people put it off and put it off, and this is not good. You know, even the the enemy can use these things to prevent people from coming to communion. So, uh, gosh, I can't. Did we get anywhere near to answering your question? Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> so it, it's it's an area in which things are developing. What what do we need really to navigate all, all that? Uh, I think basically just to be honest with ourselves, uh, to do what we can in the actual circumstances of our lives, which are very various. You know, there is one type of life for the person who is uh, retired, basically on their on, on their own, has plenty of free time for prayer and and, and so on. That is actually becomes a very important part of their life, not only for themselves but for other people, their family members, and so on. Then you have the situation with a mother with three children, young children, and so on, and the husband just living <laughs> in a permanent state of sleep deprivation, you know, uh, facing huge challenge of getting everyone uh, from one side of London to the other on a Sunday morning. Different situation, and we cannot have a one-size-fits-all approach to the. Uh, again, the general rule is, if in doubt, ask a priest. Yeah. Though so you actually are saying come the evening before. This, uh, this, this, this is, if, if, if possible, this is, uh, yes, the right thing to do. I'm sorry. Someone is about to pass away and they take communion on the day. Does that will bypass all the trials? Or just they have there, is, uh, there is there is such a belief. Sorry, which I'm interested in. You receive communion on the day you die? Yes. Basically, basically you have a direct ticket to heaven. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you could arrange to die on Holy Easter. Yes. <laughs> 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 My fear is to die under a bus. Under uh, a bus? Yeah. Why? Why because there is no... No preparation. No preparation? No. Yeah, but you could say that about a lot of people. No, it is important to be prepared. I promise, yeah. and, and I die. That's what I'm afraid of. Oh, you're afraid? Yeah. yeah. There, there was a, uh, a priest of this church, uh, Father John Lee, of blessed memory, who said... Yes. 